or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul has done. He was cut off by the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman said, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does this look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me to what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has turned the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalgamites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord also gave this army of Israel unto the hands of the Philistines as well. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you, Tony, for such a great reading of Scripture. My name is Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. If you're a visitor or a guest with us this morning, it's my privilege to welcome you as well. I'm so grateful that you're here. Well, we are continuing this morning in our series on the life of David. But our story this morning has us focused on Samuel. Samuel, it's an interesting account, hard to make sense of for some. But I want to come back to an image that we see throughout the Bible and, and perhaps in this story as well. And it's the imagery of tables. Tables are, are central to life that we see in the Bible. It's, it's an image that conveys fellowship with God and others. 
At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that the ultimate place of blessing is a place with Jesus at his table in his kingdom. You see, to sit at the royal table is to enjoy the favor and the protection and the prosperity of the king. It's a place where our deepest human needs, our needs for significance and security and belonging, all of these needs are met at this table. But yet for us, modern-day disciples of Christ, our our present circumstances can can make us believe that, that this sort of close communion and fellowship, this sort of sense of significance, security, and belonging are are elusive or difficult to find or even unattainable. But as Pastor Mike reminded us this morning, God is always present and at work. David, in his 23rd Psalm, he, he speaks to the present work of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the midst of of being surrounded by enemies, saying, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. By stark contrast, to be excluded from or disinvited from a table is is an image of humiliation or even defeat. We find ourselves here in this narrative of 1 Samuel. David's arch enemy, King Saul, is at the end of his rope, At the end of his life, the scripture tells us, the next day he's going to be with Samuel in the afterlife. I've heard the biblical narrative be described as a life between two trees. It's pointing to the imagery of the tree of life that we find in the Garden of Eden in the first chapters of Genesis and the the tree of life that's present in the eternal city that we find at the end of scripture. Saul's life might aptly be described as life between two tables. The Lord's commission on Saul's life, we read in chapter 9, is it begins at the table of the Lord. A table that was set and served by the Lord's holy prophet Samuel. A table that the scripture tells us is set in a high place. Saul, seated at the seat of honor and given the choicest portion of the meal. And yet, in this scripture for time today, on the eve of his death, Saul's life ends ignominiously at a table served by a practitioner of evil, set next to a pit where the spirits of the dead are conjured up in violation of God's own law. It's a, it's a sad ending to a life that held so much promise and so much potential. A life ordained by God himself. Saul anointed by the Lord to be the king of Israel. But it was a life that was derailed by insubordination, that was fueled by insecurity. And even indecision. It's a life to be mourned for sure. Saul is David's nemesis. But Saul was God's anointed one. And it's a life that we can learn from as modern day disciples of Christ. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? 
Father, you've invited us to the table of your presence this morning. Help us to look on Saul with compassionate curiosity and with the same love that you looked upon him, Lord, and with the humility to know that each of us is wholly dependent on your divine grace and mercy lest we find ourselves staring in to the pit. Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see Empower us ever more powerfully by your spirit to conform our hearts to the message of your word this morning. Amen. Well, we see in the first four verses of our scripture passage this morning that the Philistines have amassed against the nation of Israel. It's a crisis with the nation's very existence at stake. Throughout 1 Samuel, we see the Philistines as as this perennial enemy of the Israelites. The Philistines have amassed huge forces against Israel. And Saul knows that David and his men, he's heard rumors, David and his men have sought refuge among the Philistines. David has aligned himself with King Achish, albeit deceptively, to escape Saul's relentless attempts to end his life. So David and his 600 men are among the Philistines. Samuel is dead. Israel's prophet Samuel is dead. Samuel, the one that Saul always turned to in a time of crisis. He was the king's primary prophetic source for divine guidance. Imagine that you're on a battlefield somewhere and you want to pick up a radio and communicate to higher headquarters and you pick up and key the handset and the radio's dead. Probably not a good feeling. Saul has exhausted all three authorized channels of divine communication, verse 6 tells us. He'd inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, not by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. You see, God, at this time in the history of his revelation, God had authorized some means of how people were to inquire of the Lord. And Saul had turned to them, and all of them were silent. So in his desperation, verse 7 tells us, Saul turns to mediums. Well, how did Saul get here? And what are we to learn from this? We know from reading this account in all of 1 Samuel that there was a time when the Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon Saul, that Saul enjoyed the Spirit, and it guided him, and he obeyed it. But here in his desperation, with all of these means of connecting With God, Saul finds himself turning to something that is strictly prohibited by the scriptures. Well, how did he get here? Well, Saul has repeatedly failed to function as God's legitimate anointed one. He hasn't faithfully discharged his duties as the king of Israel. Sure, from Time to time, he's enjoyed success and had God's favor. But in the whole sum of it all, 
Saul is insubordinate. Saul is unfaithful. In contrast, we see in this account of 1 Samuel that David has been the one who's repeatedly saved the people of Israel from the threats posed by the Philistines. So much Saul, so much so, rather, that Saul spends the majority of this book trying to kill David out of jealousy. Because David is doing the things Saul should be doing. Because David is receiving the acclaim of the people that Saul wants for himself. Saul is pursuing David at the expense of the nation that has been entrusted to his care. And Saul seems to turn to anyone and anything not to be reassured of God's presence or his promises, but to control or to manage the outcome of the situation. We see back in chapter 13, Saul seeking the Lord's favor while Israel again faces the Philistines by offering a burnt offering. Not his job, not his role. Saul and his impatience doesn't wait for Samuel, and he makes a burnt offering to the Lord because he's fearful and he's trying to manipulate God into doing what Saul wants God to do. Two chapters later, we see Saul failing to follow God's very explicit command in striking down the Amalekites. Saul spares animals, choice animals and things. He spares the king. We saw in chapter 17, Saul, the king, the most capable champion of Israel, looking for somebody else to face off against Goliath. You see, to, to whom and to what and to where we turn in times of crisis speaks volumes about our faith and our spiritual maturity. I'm reminded before I was a Christian, I, when I was in trouble, I prayed a lot. God, don't let me get caught. I even remember having a distinct thought, you know, when things go really bad in my life, at this point I'm, I'm you know, approaching my 40s, I think when things go bad, who do I call? And I had a former boss in the Marine Corps who was very talented, very connected, um, loved to help people, and I thought, that's who I call. Saul would turn anywhere he could except the places he needed to, and he looked for the wrong things. In contrast, David, we see throughout the story, David first in his crises, he first turns to Samuel, the prophet, while he was still alive, David goes to his hometown in, in Ramah. And when it became obvious that the prophets in Ramah couldn't protect David any longer, he, he sought help and advice from his good friend Jonathan, King Saul's son, trying to figure out how can I be free of this threat from your father? And finally, convinced that he couldn't secure reconciliation with Saul, David went to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. And it bears noting that after these priests helped David, Saul murdered them. 
Saul and David are, are alike. They're both frail, fallen human beings. And they're both alike in that they've been anointed by God to be the king of Israel in their appointed time. But they're stark contrast to one another in terms of their character and how they lead their lives and to whom and how they look for their guidance. When faced with desperate circumstances, David repeatedly returned to the sources of his childhood faith and was reminded that Israel's God, Yahweh, the triune God, had always been his help. By contrast, and in this part of our scripture, sort of completing the triumvirate of Saul's disobedience and mistrust, Saul speaks to conjure up the dead in the hopes of obtaining God's help. You see, the law had clearly laid out that all occult activity is detestable and unacceptable to practice by any member of God's community. I want to read to you this passage real briefly from Deuteronomy chapter 18. He said, God says, there must never be found among you anyone who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, anyone who practices divination, an omen reader, a soothsayer, a sorcerer, one who casts spells, one who conjures up spirits, a practitioner of the occult, or a necromancer. You see, Israel's ban on magic was unique among the surrounding cultures. The use of magic was a, a characteristic of most of the nations around them and their worldviews. All other nations in the ancient Near East believed in and practiced a variety of the magical arts. Saul himself, we know from the scripture, has removed mediums and magicians from the land in obedience to the five books of the law. Now, perhaps it was obedience, or maybe it was to limit competition for power. I, I don't know. But the scripture's ban on magic, and this is a key point for all of us, friends, the scripture's ban on magic isn't based on the assertion that magic is ineffective. On the contrary, magic is banned by God and the scriptures because it works. Our, you see, our, our Western preoccupation with empiricism and science has, has reduced the weight that magic once held among societies and cultures throughout history, although many societies and cultures today still ascribe a great deal of weight to magic. And yet the Bible tells us that the power of magic is real. We see New Testament accounts of the use of magic and Paul condemning it. And by magic, I don't mean illusion or sleight of hand. I mean this attempt to manipulate the hierarchy of demons and angels in order to mediate the supernatural. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. The Bible tells us it's real. You 
may or may not have experienced it, and that's okay. But it's real. And, and we need to know that when we in our human power attempt to unlock divine secrets, we are in rebellion against God. Not only are we violating God's law, but in a sense, we, we are making ourselves equal with God. Saul's allegiance to the covenant here, friends, it's gone. If it ever existed at all. You see, the, the portrait of Saul throughout 1 Samuel is that of a man. He's, he's a reluctant king. He hides in the baggage. When Samuel tells him, you're going to be the king of Israel, and Saul is reunited with his family members, his uncle says, what did the prophet tell you? He said, oh yeah, the donkeys came back. Saul's reluctant and insecure. But he also, in his insecurity, he enjoys the power and the prestige that comes with being Israel's king. You see, his habits and his thoughts and his behaviors quenched the power of the Holy Spirit that had rushed upon him and inhabited him. And here, standing at this table, if you will, at the side of a pit used by a practitioner of the occult to conjure up the spirits of the underworld, Saul has reached his lowest point. And if the arc of Saul's life throughout 1 Samuel is our indicator, Saul has never been interested in obeying God. Saul's interested, or interest rather, has never been in obeying God. Saul's interest has been in getting God to obey him. Rather than being an instrument of God's loyal love to his covenant people, the very people that Saul was anointed to lead and to shepherd and to care for. Saul sought to make God an instrument of his own power. For all his insecurity, Saul loves the power he holds. And to, to help retain that power, God, Saul rather treats God like a, like a talisman that he carries around in the pocket of his royal robe. Pull it out when I need it. Shove it back down in my pocket when everything's going well. He doesn't treat him as a living God who's to be revered and worshipped and glorified through faithful service. He treats God like an object to be manipulated. Ungodly power was at work in Saul and in his kingdom or kingship. And ungodly power is at work today. Ungodly power today elevates some voices and silences others. It protects some bodies today and harms others or places them at risk. Godly, ungodly power is at work in every context. It's at work in homes, schools, workplaces. It's at work in churches, in cultures, societies, governments. And wherever ungodly power is wielded, the image of God in humanity suffers. But the good news, friends, is that God's love is not blind to ungodly power. God's love always reckons with power. God's love provides the ultimate reckoning with power in Jesus. 
He's the divine embodiment of God's love. He's God's love in human flesh, showing us all what God's love looks like. Jesus knew himself what it was like to be on the wrong side of worldly power. He was a Jew living in Roman-occupied Palestine. He was a Jew from Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth, on the other side of that God-forsaken region called Samaria, Nazareth. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? One of the disciples' brothers says. Jesus upended assumptions about who has honor and status in society and who doesn't. Jesus, who says, the last shall be first. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, he lifted up and empowered and honored the marginalized, the despised, and the rejected. And he centered piety and faithfulness to the law. He says, on the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and love. You see, more than anything else, friends, God wants our loyal love. It's how we're to bear his divine image. And and how do we show loyal love to God? It's simple, but it's also complex. But it's primarily through obedience to what he's asked of us. Saul has not shown God loyal love from the very beginning. He consistently fails to give God the one thing that God wants from Saul. His loyal love. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Saul is being confronted by the prophet Samuel because Saul failed to obey God's instruction to destroy all of the Amalekites. All of their stuff, all of their animals, the women, children, men, and the king. Saul has allowed his soldiers to plunder choice animals and things. And Saul has preserved the life of the king. And Samuel confronts him. And Samuel says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices? You see, Saul is justifying his actions, saying these are great things that we can sacrifice to the Lord. We can use them for our benefit. They have utility to us. And Samuel says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obedience? Certainly, obedience is better than sacrifice. Paying attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And presumption is like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the Lord's orders, he has rejected you from being king. The faithful and true disciple conforms their entire self to Christ. David and Saul are are both sinful men. The list of sins of both of these men is long and triggering for some. But David, in spite of his sin, is always making an effort to conform himself to God, standing in the truth of who God is, reminding himself of God's promises. 
We have over 70 psalms of his as evidence of David's heart in this matter. And we heard one of those psalms this morning in the call to worship. But yet Saul in his sin focuses his efforts on trying to conform God to himself. And where has it led him? Estranged from God and his royal place at the Lord's table, taken from him and now at the side of a pit, sharing a meal with a witch. The day before he and all of his sons will die on the field of battle. Well, how are you and I to apply this to our own lives? Well, first, I want to come back to that we, we need to ascribe due weight to the spiritual forces and power that are at work against God in us. There's a whole lot that could be said or taught on that very topic, but I think it starts by just ascribing the due weight and respect that it deserves, that it's real, that it's not something to be played with. Second, I think we need to consider the ways that we may be using good things in a magical way in an attempt to, God, to get God to do what we want God to do. It can creep into our spiritual lives, our, our lives as disciples, our lives as Christians is very, in very subtle ways. We can use prayer and church attendance and Bible reading and how much we give as ways that we even subconsciously hope to exact God's favor. Some believers come to expect good things from God. There's a whole theology, a heretical theology, the prosperity gospel based on this. Some people even can find themselves believing that God owes them something because of their faithfulness. Because they or we, because I've fulfilled certain obligations, I think God must bless me. The scriptures say that there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, and that's true, friends. But God doesn't owe us anything more than what he's already done for us. So we need to be careful about allowing our lives, our relationship with God to be reduced to a sort of quid pro quo. We keep our end of the bargain. God keeps his. Those are abuses of the means of grace. And I think it, each of us can examine our hearts there and, and ask ourselves, where might we engage in that? It's, it's as misguided as Saul's trip to Endor. And finally, we, we need to replace our own mediums and spiritists, if you will, with, with prophets and priests of the Lord by the, by the nurturing and support of, of those proper replacements. And what has God given us to replace spiritists and mediums of other cultures? He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us one another, the community of God's people. In verse 15, Saul tells the spirit of Samuel that he's conjured up from the dead. He says, I've called on you to tell me what I should do. A bit ironic in his 40th year of his reign as king. 
But friends, God has told us what we should do. And searching for guidance from God can lend an aura of spirituality to what is is actually an avoidance of taking action in something that we know God has already told us. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show mercy, and to do justice and kindness, to love our enemies. God has told us what we should do. When we've attended to that most important of all relationships, when when we find, when we've done that, when we find ourselves in our own moment of crisis, and inevitably we all have and we all will, we can face this uncertainty with the confidence and hope in, in who God has over and over and over proclaimed himself to be. And with the confidence we have in what God has done through Christ and what the Father, Son, and Spirit are doing in us. And when we do that, friends, we walk in the assurance that one day you and I will eat and drink at Christ's table in his eternal kingdom. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, we offer you such great thanksgiving that that you're a God who from the beginning to the end of Scripture reveals to those who bear your image your good and perfect desires for them, your loyal love for us, and what it is that you call us to do. Father, living life in this world isn't easy. It's not black and white. It's not so clear-cut. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of confusion. And God, you don't demand that we get it perfect every time. You don't demand that, that we're always right, Lord, because you look on us with the perfection and the righteousness of your son, Jesus. But God, you do call us to walk in obedience. And in trust that who you've proclaimed yourself to be is true and unchanging. The constant we can always look to in our times of distress. When we feel like the nations have surrounded us and our very survival's at stake, God. We can always rely on you. And so, Father, we give you thanks for the life of David and of Saul. Two men who you loved and love. Two men whom you appointed to be the king of your chosen people. Two men on whose shoulders you placed the weight of great responsibility. And Lord, today as New Testament believers, you've placed that same weight on us. to abide in your spirit, to dwell in your words, to search for you in the scriptures, and to obey what it is that you've asked us to do, Lord, and to do it with one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Father, I pray that for 
all of us here today, that, that we could become more like David in his obedience, more like Jesus in his perfect obedience and in his heart and character, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.